Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have Seth Williams. In a two-part interview, Seth describes his fall from grace from being elected the first African-American district attorney of Philadelphia, America's fifth largest city, to being tried for corruption, to becoming a federal inmate serving five months of his 60-month sentence in solitary confinement to a new life after prison of faith and service. A member of our white collar support group that meets on Monday evenings, Seth goes into stunning detail about his poor choices, prosecution, prison experience, and his lessons learned. So coming up, Seth Williams on White Collar Week. I hope you will join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries the world's first ministry serving the white-collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white-collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer, so I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. So welcome back. All right, Seth, um, when uh, when we broke off, you were talking about your experiences in uh, uh, solitary, leading up to your transfer. Um, uh, your transfer. So, uh, why don't you pick it up from there? So, you know, I just began. All I could do while I was in solitary was read, mm-hmm. and I read everything that I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Primarily, they bring a cart through the hall, yeah, and you just look through the window and just point, mm-hmm. or maybe they just. There is no option. They just give you something. So I've, I really began to read all that I could. But as I've told you, I was raised Catholic. I always considered myself a Christian. Um, I had never read the Bible from start to finish before. And it was only while I was in solitary that I read from the first word in Genesis to the last word in Revelation. Wow. And it really began to... Mm-hmm. That, that transformation. Yeah. And I read a great book called Born Again, mm-hmm. which was written by uh, Charles Colson. Yeah, Chuck Colson's book. Mm-hmm. Chuck Colson, who had been an attorney, senior mm-hmm. advisor to President Nixon. Mm-hmm. And as a result of the Watergate scandal and things, he found himself in prison. Mm-hmm. And I remember in that book specifically, because um, I, for the longest time while I was in jail, was mad. And angry. Why am I here? Why me? Why not everybody else that did what I think was much more egregious than me? How did I get targeted or picked out? And um, on page 306 of his book, uh, Born Again, uh, it really rang true for me because what he said was that being there in prison then was where he needed to be. Yeah. To shed the person he had been. Mm-hmm. And to become, to begin the process of becoming who he was intended to be. Yeah. And so I had always been looking at it through the perspective of like Job, like all these terrible things are happening. Why me? Why me? Why me? And as a result of things that occurred while I was in prison, um, I began looking at it from a different perspective, mm-hmm. like, uh, like Picasso's Cubism art. You know, it might look like a bad, like an ear here, and then from here, but it's the same ear, just yeah. perspective. And so I began to see what was terrible, I thought, because I lost my job, I lost my salary, I lost my incredible $122,000 a year pension that would have begun when I turned 55. Mm. I lost my military career, my military pension. I lost my house, my law license, all of those things I lost. Um, but I really began to look at it that I gained a lot. And that began during that process. Um, so I was sentenced in October. Um, and they don't tell you after that where you're going or when you're leaving. It's all, they're, they're, they don't tell you anything. They don't tell you anything. It's all top secret. Mm-hmm. And there's so much we could talk about, about just what goes on in prison. Who knows? Sure. What, you know, and the, 
so much that is just such window dressing uh, the BOP is doing. Um, there's no oversight. No one really knows what's going on. Yeah. There are different rules for almost every shift. So it's just, uh, I, I, I began, as I was telling you before, the people that I had met, SK, and uh, an inmate who was in the cell next to me, mm-hmm. and uh, a guy named White Mike, another serial killer, mm. and White Mike, because his co-defendant was Mike, and his co-defendant was African-American, and since he was White and Mike, his nickname was White Mike, which he hated. He looked just like um, uh, the rapper Slim Shady, the, the white rapper from oh, uh, Eminem. Eminem, right. <laughs> Slim Shady. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I just want to make a point here that as crazy as it was for you and for me being in uh, federal prison, the reports we're getting from our, 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 our uh, group members during COVID is that everything is 10 times crazier. Right. I can only imagine yeah. what I began to experience from my week, from my daily, you know, 50 minute conversation with SK mm-hmm. or white Mike, um, and other individuals, guy named Omar. Um, I began to really see them as three dimensional people. Yes. Not just as defendants mm-hmm. or cases, but they had families. They had, Almost all of them had experienced some sort of horrific trauma as a kid, had begun um, smoking marijuana at a young age and then more alcohol and then doing other drugs. And just almost every person that I met that was in prison that was allegedly there as a drug dealer was really a a drug addict. Yeah. Um, So I was sentenced in October and they don't tell you where you're going to go or when. And then one day, um, the Friday before, the, the Friday after Thanksgiving, I was told, I uh, can't tell you this, can't verify this, Williams. This is some uh, a prison employee. You're moving on Monday. So, you know, just be prepared mentally. So Monday came. Um, they handcuffed me. They took me downstairs. I was given a different uniform. Mm-hmm. I was handcuffed. I had a belly chain around my waist. Yeah. I had leg irons connecting my feet, which were connected to my waist. And just like in a a movie uh, from the the, the 40s, like a film noir, I, uh, you know, was put on a bus, Mm -hmm. a U.S. Marshal's bus. Mm -hmm. Um, I was driven to Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. At where there's an airport. Yep. All these buses with all types of places they say they're going or are, mm-hmm. are there. Marshall's buses, not Greyhound, not Trailways. Marshall's with shotguns out there. They're all the whole uh, circumference of where we are. The perimeter is Marshall's with shotguns and M16s. Yep. And they call my name. I get off a bus. I stand out on the tarmac for what seemed a lifetime to me as it was um, a very cold November day. Mm-hmm. And all I had on was just um, a t-shirt and, uh, and um, khaki pants. Yep. And uh, then I was told to get on an airplane. And again, I would handcuffed, belly chain, leg irons, walk up to get on an airplane. And, uh, handcuffed, you know, leg irons in the seat. Mm -hmm. And we flew for four hours to Oklahoma City, which is the Oklahoma City's, the Federal Transportation Center. Yeah. For people who don't know, it's like Memphis for FedEx. It's where everybody goes there first, and then you get resorted. And uh, the plane is known as Con Air. Mm Mm-hmm. And just like in the movie with Nicolas Cage, which I thought was complete fiction until I was on it. Yep. And this entire experience from learning I was being investigated to being indicted to going on trial, I never once 
know, people always ask me, I never had any thoughts of wanting to take my own life. I always knew that there was hope, yep. that there was a lesson that there would be at some point light at the end of mm-hmm. the tunnel. But that day, as I was sitting on the airplane, handcuffed, uh, leg irons, just, just the, it really just rushing over me that this, my life had come to that. I didn't want to die, but I said, you know, if the plane goes down, I, I had a good life up until then. Yeah. Um, and so then I was in Oklahoma City, and you're in lines for lines for lines for all types of things. Then I was mm-hmm. led to our pod, which was just like in the TV show Oz on HBO, a two-story yeah. um, cells on the top, mm-hmm. cells on the bottom, a common area with concrete tables that are connected to the floor. Um, they bring meals there on a big push cart. And um, what I quickly learned was everything was completely segregated by race. Mm-hmm. The, the, the correctional officers don't put black inmates in cells with white inmates. They're all segregated. Um, at the tables when you eat, there were five tables for African-Americans, four tables for the whites, three tables over here for the Hispanics, and nobody sits at the wrong table or it's going to be a fight. And I thought that was just something out of movies, something that I witnessed. One day I befriended another inmate who's, who was white yep. and was Seth. So we're talking. I'm having a conversation with this guy named Seth. Mm-hmm. It came time for lunch. I sat down at the table with Seth. We were the first ones to get our food. We sat down. We were talking. A guy came over to me, put his hand on my shoulder. A white guy put his hand on Seth's shoulders and said, come on. They took us to different tables and said, look, you just, with, you know, you don't make the rules. You just can't start eating with other people. The TV rooms were all segregated. You had one TV room with country music and Fox, another TV room with African-American guys watching ESPN and BET all day. Yeah. The Hispanic room. And then another room that was like a hodgepodge of everyone watching science fiction all day. Yeah. And it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had people there with every uh, security classification, people that were going to the high secure penitentiary with, with KKK and swastikas on their skulls yeah. to accountants, you know, going to serve very short sentences, yeah. all thrown in together in the same mix. And that was uh, an incredible, just bizarre experience. And then again, eight days later, handcuffed, leg irons, belly flown to Pittsburgh from Oklahoma City. And then a bus from Pittsburgh to Morgantown. So did you know you were going to Morgantown at that point? Or at what point did you find out where your designation was? I think uh, on that Friday after Thanksgiving, when the the, the, the BOP uh, employee told me, hey, I can't tell you where you're going, but I hear you're going to Morgantown, but you didn't yeah. hear it from me. And mm-hmm. I heard you're going to be moving on Monday, but you didn't hear it from me. Yeah. No one told me. Um, and the theory, I guess they say, is in case someone's going to try to break me out or intercept me, uh, they won't know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know officially until I got to Morgantown. And they told me to get off the bus. And, that and, 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 and were you aware that Morgantown was a camp? I mean, did you understand the security level? It was only while I was in uh, the federal detention center in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And the inmate was talking to me through the grating of the plumbing between ourselves. Yeah. Did I learn um, that if I had less than so many points which is how they come up with your um, classification as yeah. that I was going to be designated to a, a, a minimum security facility for people that are serving less than 10 years. Um, and that is when I learned that I was going to Morgantown, but Morgantown is not known as a camp. It's a FCI, Federal Correctional Institution. 
It's a standalone facility and has right. its own shoe, specialized housing unit or a shoe. Right? Yeah. The hole is it's known in some places, which is where I lived for five months. And so, um, and it had, it's a very large one. When I first got there, I think there were about 1,100 uh, inmates. Yeah. I think it's significantly lower when I left. It was closer to uh, closer to 800, maybe even 700 when I was leaving. Yeah, so just to, just to explain to people, usually when we say camp, it's, it's a satellite facility outside of a higher security prison. Right. And, and the, the uh, uh, prisoners at the camp often do have work assignments that have to do with the higher facility prison. You do the, you do the um, landscaping or you do the driving or you do whatever. But Morgantown is one of the exceptions where it's a, it's a standalone facility, which has some benefits because there are also a lot more resources there. True. Yes. Um, I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. I just knew that I wanted to go to a place that had weights they say some places they don't have weights. Yeah. I wanted to go to a place that had a library. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to a place that had a chapel. Yeah. I wanted to go to a place that had a dog training program. I wanted to go to a place that had um, RDAP. Um, and so I arrived in Morgantown. I got off the bus and they pointed where I was supposed to go. They gave me a bedroll. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm walking across the compound. That's what they call the, the prison property. Right? It's not a campus like you would think in a college, right? It's called a compound. I saw a beautiful chapel. There was a pond in front of it. I was walking along a, a walkway. I saw what looked, appeared to be an inmate in a room playing a saxophone. And I wanted to learn to play an instrument. I Got to my unit, uh, a guy introduced himself to me. He said to me, are you a Christian? I said, yeah. He said, I want you to join our Bible study. I was like, okay. And I was put in a unit because I was a veteran of the Army, the Veterans Wing, and Morgantown, that's where the dog training program was. Mm -hmm. So all the things, and I saw the weight pit, the outdoor weight pit. Yeah. On my way there. So all the things I, if I'm going to be at a prison, I hope that I can have some of those things, all of those things um, avail themselves to me. And, you know, that very first day, they give you things, but you don't have shower shoes, right? You don't want to take a shower in prison unless you've got something on your feet. That's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, you don't, they don't give you toilet paper. Uh, but you have to have toilet paper. I mean, this is, sounds like a, such a minor thing, but the toilets don't just have toilet paper. Like if you're at a, a private, you know, uh, industry, or if you're at a restaurant somewhere, and you, you have to have toilet paper. So uh, it was a responsibility of another inmate who was from Philadelphia uh, to come and find me and to give me all of the essentials that I would need for my first week until I could go to commissary and buy right. them. And it was his responsibility to give me the lay of the land, the rules, right? Because they give you a rule book, but there are 101 unwritten rules that are more important as an inmate not to violate because the other inmates will get mad at you. Yeah. Like where I was, if you wore your shower shoes, um, the TV room, there are rooms, there are about six rooms that have TVs. Mm-hmm. You have to have headphones connected to an MP3 player or a radio. Yeah. And then turn to the frequency of that specific TV to listen to that show. Well, if you go into the room with just shower shoes and no socks, that might really start an argument with some people. You got to have socks everywhere you go. Yeah. That's not a rule. So this guy's role to come to me and just to lay everything out for me. And again, despite having been an attorney, I had to rely on the inmate that was in that cell next to me to tell me about RDAP, to tell me about life in prison, 
And this gentleman named George Banks, who came up to me my very first day mm. while I was at Morgantown. And Jeff, I have to just interrupt because just a few weeks ago, I was driving down the street in Philadelphia and I saw my friend who had introduced me to the rules of Morgantown my very first day in prison. And I just saw him on the street. And I said to the person driving the car, let me out, it's George. I jumped out of the car, saw George and gave him a big hug. Mm-hmm. And just, I said, I want to thank you um, for all the things you did while we were away. He knew who I was. He had lost property of his because the district attorney's office through asset forfeiture had seized a home, had yeah. seized vehicles, and my name was all on it. He knew he had every reason to have some animosity if he wanted, but he didn't. And he looked out for me and would pray with me and would talk to me and give me good advice. And I found that there were so many people who I would never have expected based on who I had been. Yeah. My own personal preconceived notions. I learned so much from what we would refer to as meth heads mm-hmm. that are clearly KKK supporters from Appalachia who taught me a lot while I was old. Yeah. Or men like George, you know, or SK or White Mike. Yeah. That when I was at my lowest, would say, hey, and talk to me. And uh, it was just an amazing uh, beginning of an amazing experience where at the very beginning, people didn't like me because I had been a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And as much as they hate cops, they hate prosecutors. And they're yeah. used to federal prosecutors who they think are just liars and just mm-hmm. make stuff up. And um, unlike as they see it in the city, you know, or local prosecutors, someone's car was stolen. Someone did get shot. Someone's house was burglarized. Things happened that day that were real. Mm-hmm. What the average person in federal prison saw was that there was some long-term investigation. And most of the men that I saw that were in prison for drug cases um, were there on what's called ghost drugs. No drugs were ever recovered. Um, it's just based on telephone calls. And what they perceived, the amount of drugs that they were talking about, they were indicted. And then they were threatened with so many years of incarceration, they pled to a fraction of that. And they so, started- so it's, these, it's these, these weird draconian conspiracy laws right. where you could actually go to prison for conspiracy, even if you're not involved in what's going on. So. If, if, uh, if you're a friend to George and George is a friend to Ted and George and Ted are doing something wrong and you're doing something wrong with George, then whatever Ted does is going to be, uh, is going to be on your charges too. Or just the, the perception of it on the tapes or whatever the information they had, things that would have gotten us laughed out or thrown out of state court, they're different rules. So I'm not In- saying anything nefarious necessarily. I'm just saying it's completely different rules. Well, they may get you left out of federal court too, except that nobody goes to federal court. Everybody, everybody, well, 98% plead. Correct. And so I really began uh, a gentleman who, again, was like a mentor to me. I found all these like Yoda, like people who were just oozing wisdom. One gentleman was there. He was serving a sentence for a year and a day mm-hmm. because he lied on his resume that he had submitted electronically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned a lot from a lot of people. But when I saw George on the street, I just had to jump out and just thank him for his kindness, um, for looking out for me. When I was away, but the transfer part of the arc was I'd gone from a person that a lot of inmates despised because they learned I was the DA. Um, many of them thought that I had prosecuted a famous Philadelphia rapper named Meek Mill. 
Yeah. Not, nothing to do with the, the prosecution of uh, Meek Mill, um, but they thought I did. Um, and so it started there. Yeah. In, in December of 2017, when I arrived at Morgantown, mm -hmm. um, by the end, you know, I went through RDAP, I became a dog trainer, I was a suicide prevention cadre member. I taught GED for two years. I taught spin. I taught um, saxophone. I taught piano because I learned those things. I taught uh, classical poetry on the evening, Tuesday evenings. And that could be a sitcom all to itself. But Jeff, by the end, I was sitting in, I, everybody gets a nickname in prison. They came up with a nickname for me. And once they come up with a nickname, you can't change it. I was professor. Ooh, nice. And I kind of liked that. Yeah, sure. Right? I was the oldest guy in my car. Mm. So you can't, it's not like you can just go to- e e Explain what a car is. Right. So that's who you ride with. And mm -hmm. so you can't, it's not like going to the gym at Planet Fitness where you can just show up at <laughs> 10, 30 one day and just work on biceps or, uh, you know, I feel like- Today at 1 p.m., I'm going to go work on legs. No, my car, you had to be invited. The guys had to ask you to be in it. Right. So myself, there was five of us. Mm -hmm. Every morning was our time at 7 a.m. Mm -hmm. in the outdoor weight pit. Yep. Like in Rocky Four, when Rocky yep. is preparing to fight the Russian. We're just outside, no matter yep. what the weather is. Mm -hmm. It's cold. It's hot. Whatever. Mm -hmm. And you rotate through the weight pit. Like Mondays is our day on maybe the bench press. Yeah. Tuesdays from 7 until 8.15, we're doing squats on a squat machine or whatever. Um, so I was called the professor. And I just say that the arc of going from everybody seemed to me hating me to me being on the championship over 40 basketball team in 2018. I was a point guard on the championship prison basketball team of all things. So when it was time to leave, one day I was sitting in the TV room and the majority of interpersonal conflict uh, arise just in the TV room. People were arguing about nonsensical, but to, to people in that situation, real stuff. Yeah. And you can't belittle it or try to act like mm -hmm. something's not important. And, 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 and there are things going on that you don't know about. Right. So there's people betting on football games and there's all kinds of stuff going on and you don't want to know about it. But people, people but, on who's going to be the third guy through the room. Who's going to mm -hmm. be whatever. I mean, I had crazy things. They knew I was the DA of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Jeff, you're not going to believe this, but there was a, there's a movie called law abiding citizen, which is about, Jamie Foxx becomes the district attorney of Philadelphia. Yeah. He's the first black DA of Philadelphia. Yeah. Okay. He had served the DA and the, the or his successor, uh, I'm sorry, his predecessor was assassinated. Mm. Okay. By Gerard Butler's character. <laughs> sorry. Not, I apologize. <laughs> when I had been the DA, every church I went to, I was introduced as. Philadelphia and Pennsylvania's first African-American district attorney. Yeah. One day at a church, a woman came up to me at the end. She goes, no, you're not. You're not the first black DA. Jamie Foxx was. I was like, I was looking for the camera. Like I was on like Alan Funt's hidden camera or something. Right. And the pastor was like, like, just don't argue with this lady. Yeah. So she told me that she knew that I wasn't because in the movie, Law Abiding Citizen, the mayor of Philadelphia had a cameo, and he was there when Jamie Foxx's character was sworn in as the DA. Yeah. This lady's thinking it's a documentary, not a fictitious movie. That's awesome. Fast forward, I'm in prison. I walk in one day to the TV room, and they're showing Law Abiding Citizen. Yeah, of course. All the guys in the room, about 20 guys in the room, they all look at me. I walk in. I don't know what's happened or what discussions they've had. And I just say, hey, that's the art museum. That's Kelly driving, naming yeah. um, landmarks in Philadelphia. And I walked out. 
I was told later by a couple inmates, yo, man, when you walked out, they were like, yo, that's a badass brother. That movie's about him. <laughs> they made this movie about him, and that's why he's in prison. So just, just crazy things happen. You, you, know, you know, what people don't understand is that the culture, everything is different. And it makes sense kind of once you're there because it's all about self-preservation and right. it, it's like it's like the world grew up in a petri dish and it grew its own rules and it grew right. its own things and it, it it approximates what we have going on on the outside right. but because it grew up in 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 confinement it's it's different right it's perfect uh, jeff because i tell folks and you know when we talk to folks who are about to go away i say hey you're an incredibly intelligent person but when you get there, just be quiet. Yeah. Just watch. Listen to the Georges. Listen to SK. Yeah. Now, you might not want to take stock advice from them, but when you're in prison, listen to them. And so, like at Morgantown, if you are going to sit in a TV room, you got to bring your own chair from your cubicle, mm -hmm. your cell. Yeah. And you don't just get to put your chair anywhere. Yeah. There's like a, an order of yeah. how long you've been there. The longer you've been there, and the more you sit in that one TV room, yeah, the closer up you are. The closer you get to the front, if yeah. you want. If you want. If you want to stay in the back, you can stay in the back, but nobody can sit where you sit. Yep. That's where you normally go. Mm -hmm. Now, you can make an argument. Come on, this is America. I can sit anywhere I want. I don't need to wear socks. Don't do that. Don't do yeah. that. Don't be that guy. Just listen. And so the arc of the story is that at the very beginning, people hated me. I'm, I'm yeah. the BA, but then I'm the professor. 19 of my students earn their GEDs. They see that I'm, I care. I thought Bible study, the chapel. I went to every Catholic mass and every Protestant worship service. Mm -hmm. I'm the professor. At the very end, I was in a TV room, and we're having a discussion about changing the channel. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want them to change the channel. Some young guy who was new started cursing and screaming. Yeah. And calling me all types of names that I won't repeat here. Yeah. I didn't need to say anything, Jeff. Nope. Somebody else stood up and said, whoa, that's the professor. Nobody talks to the professor like that. I could cry now thinking about it. Yep. That's it really meant a lot to me, mm -hmm. you know, that I had like made an impact on some folks in a positive way. Yeah. And there wasn't, you know, to stand up for me. You know, along the way, I met a lot of people that were stone cold racist, um, who were evil, who called me the N-word and did all types of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so I met that these gentlemen who in the past I would have just thought were racist with their swastikas and, you know, they were lied to is what I came to really learn and appreciate. And that, they thought that the reason why their lives were so um, dysfunctional and economically challenged from their corner of Kentucky was because they had been lied to that brown people and black people were taking all of their jobs and all of the money that should be coming to them. Yep. Where in my perception, in my belief system now, it's my fixed opinion that poor white people and poor black people have so much more in common with yeah. each other than in the, the extremely wealthy of either race. Of course. But it behooves some people or people think it behooves them to keep them at odds with each other and at war with each other as opposed to seeing the similarities, the common goals, the common needs. And again, I tell folks, um, uh, the, the, the military and prison both uh, bring people from different races together in ways that normally we don't. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you've probably heard the saying that 10 o'clock on Sundays is the most segregated hour in America. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so people finally come together and witness and learn and observe and really begin to see the similarities more than uh, what separates us. So, um, you, um, your time is, you, you go through RDAP, the Re residential drug uh, program, and your time is reset. And you know that your release date's reset. 
um, as you're counting down to your release, um, do you know you're going home? Do you have your date? Um, and do you know where you're going? At what point do you find out where you're going? Do you have a place to go home to? Do you have to go to a halfway house? What's going on? Yeah, so that all of that is a continuing moving target. Mm-hmm. And it was very hard to get an answer. So you know the hard date based on the 60-month sentence. You know there's a time at which you can't go any further than that. Yeah. But how much calculation you're going to get for the deduction from the earn good time. Mm-hmm. And then along the way, as you're well aware, uh, the first step act was passed by Congress and signed into law by the president. Mm-hmm. And there was all types of talk about us earning extra credit for programming, right. meaning GED, having a job, being in a empirical based, a data driven recidivism reducing program mm-hmm. we were told was going to get so many days taken off. People thought that you could recalculate and you're going to get this or that. The case managers in Morgantown actually put memos up on their walls outside their offices saying, we don't know anything about the First Step Act. There's been no um, information sent to us. No, no clarification. Don't ask us any questions about it. Yeah. So, but ultimately I was given as a result of earning 12 months off for the completion of the residential drug abuse program. Yeah. Which was a, uh, uh, for me, it was a 13 month intensive, uh, three hours of group uh, discussion mm-hmm. every morning, another hour of small group discussions in the evenings. Um, but you are uh, 24 hours living with the same group of people in which you are accountable for your, all of your behaviors to them right. mm-hmm. talk about them through uh, cognitive behavior therapy, CBT. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was given a new date. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was told it was going to be in April and I wanted to get home for my mother's birthday. She was going to have her birthday on April the 6th. And I was originally told it was going to be April the 6th that I was going to get out. And I wanted to come home and surprise my mother and not tell her and just show up at her nursing home. Yeah. Um, before I'd gone away, she lived with me. Then she went into a nursing home. But I visited her, did her laundry every week, talked yeah. to her while, while I was in prison. I called every Sunday to talk to her on the telephone. Mm, lovely. And um, But due to COVID, um, the change in rules and quarantining before you could leave. Yeah. I didn't get to leave until April the 23rd. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and did you, did you have to spend two weeks in quarantine before you left? Yes. It ended up being three weeks mm-hmm. in quarantine before I left. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole nother story that had me angry and wanting to write letters to congressmen, but you know, nobody really cares what happens to folks that are only in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, uh, right, so before, before you move forward, so how long is your sentence? How long was your sentence in your uh, in in your in your JNC, and then how long did you actually serve, given the credits for for RDAP and good time to you to the day you walked out the prison door? So my sentence was sixty months. Mm-hmm. Um, I was given a credit of a day for the day that I. Uh, was when I was indicted, and you go in and you turn yourself in, and you get fingerprints yeah. and all that. Mm-hmm. So you get a day for that. Um, but then I was incarcerated after entering my plea. They revoked my bail June the 29th of 2017. Um, but I earned 12 months off for the residential drug abuse program. I earned a little more than nine months off for just earned good time. While I was away, I had no shots, no yeah. point. For disruptive behavior, uh, I made my bed every day. Mm-hmm. I never stepped on the grass during times of the day when you can't walk on grass. Whatever it was, I didn't do anything to the ducks. Nothing. Um, all my library books turned in on time, right? So, um, I earned all of those earned good time days, and uh, was able to. And then I was given. Six months. Um, originally, they were it was going to be at a halfway house, 
Um, but the Bureau of Prisons, uh, the Department of Probations did their investigation and they determined that it would not be in, it would not be a safe environment uh, for me or the inmates if I were to be housed in a halfway house in Philadelphia. So then they were going to put me in a halfway house in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Then they decided they were just going to put me, send me directly to home confinement. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately, I um, was sentenced uh, and, and allowed to go. I had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. I'm very thankful that my ex-wife allowed me to live in the attic of her home where our youngest two daughters still live with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and they went did an inspection there. And I was allowed to live in her attic for the um, beginning of my home confinement. Now, as I recall, that was until September 30th of last year. Is that right? I was released on April the 23rd. A friend of mine who had been the district attorney of a small county in Pennsylvania, he picked me up, drove me home. Um, Along the way, my probation officer met us along the turnpike and put an electronic monitor on my ankle. Yep told me the rules of that, mm-hmm. you know, what my confinement hours were, which I had to be in the house unless I was going to work, um, unless I was going to worship services or going to medical attention, seeking medical attention. Yeah. Um, and so I was just home. Um, I got a job working as an overnight stalker at a large, a, a nationwide chain, a, a, a box, you know, a home improvement store. Yeah. And it was my job to show up at 7 p.m. We unload trucks and put them on shelves. Um, and again, I found myself with people who I probably in the past would not have been rubbing elbows with as, as uh, um, colleagues at the workforce. But I found myself learning so much from these folks, you know, Um, and I did that and just lifting toilets and lumber and air conditioners every night. And then I got kind of a promotion and they put me in charge of not in charge of, but working, um, uh, filling online orders. So I go run around like a you know, an Easter egg hunt, looking for people's orders and putting them in a specific place in the store. Um, and then again, I found myself that I was in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. because during the summer, after the, the murder of George Floyd mm-hmm. and others across America and the turmoil, um, the young men that worked with me um, were looking for answers and were angry. And as much as I learned from them, I'm thankful that I think I was there. I think I was at the right place at the right time mm-hmm. you know, after the murder of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as I learned from the young men that were working with me, I think I was able, I, from what they told me, to give them good advice, to understand what was going on, and for them not to um, take matters into their own hands and to be violent, but to look at things in perspective and to work for social justice as they saw it. Um, so I began working there. Another friend who owns an in-home healthcare agency asked me to work at his place on Mondays and Tuesdays in the mornings. Trying, so he's trying to certify returning citizens to provide in-home healthcare. Um, his name was Roosevelt Harrison, and he had worked He'd been a, the uh, general counsel at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. He was indicted. He went away to prison. Yeah. And now he had this huge company, and he wrote me while I was away and gave me this job when I got home. Mm-hmm. And then I began a voter registration and education drive because I didn't think that ex-offenders could vote in Pennsylvania, but I learned that we could. Yeah. Um, so then on September the 30th, my uh, house arrest home confinement ended and I was able to use scissors to cut off the ankle monitor at the direction of my probation officer. And, uh, the first thing I did was I went downtown in Philadelphia and registered to vote. 
And uh, I did that and I just walked around. I saw, you know, the art museum and just places I hadn't been to and just the awe of just being able to walk around. Um, I used to tell my daughters when I was in solitary, I just wanted to feel the wind against my face, Mm. smell bacon, you know, um, and to be able to turn the lights on when I want turn the lights off when I want. Mm-hmm. But I learned a lot. And, you know, as a as an American, as this guy we talked about earlier, um, the grandiosity, thinking I needed all types of tools in my garage for my yard, and I needed this, and I had a wonderful Rolex watch as a gift. Um, everything, Jeff, everything that I needed for the three years I was away was in a locker that was three feet tall, two feet wide, and one foot deep. Mm-hmm. My coffee, my creamer, my socks, my three, you know, four pairs of underwear, whatever, everything I needed. Yep. Soap, uh, books, everything that was mine was right there. And we don't need much more than that, do we? You know, we really don't. No. And so this life on the, the, the hamster wheel, thinking I got to get this and this, let's just stop. Yeah. Let's, you know, um, and so I had to, uh, that was one of the most important lessons I learned as well. Yeah. So now it's uh, a little over four months, you're on probation. Can bring us up to date as to where you are now. Um, certainly you're, you've become a power of example to everybody in our support group. And I know you reach out to a lot of people and they reach out to you, but what, what else are you doing in the world right now? And then what are your, what are your plans in for the foreseeable future? Well, I think one, it's important to recognize that despite me having had been an attorney for 25 years mm-hmm. um, and knowing what I thought was a lot about the criminal justice system, um, I really had to uh, become uh, a resident to see it from a different perspective. Yeah. And I, I learned in my first 48 hours that I thought that every prosecutor, every judge um, should spend some time as a resident uh, to get a different perspective on how should we go about reducing recidivism? Mm-hmm. Do we need a sentence of a year and a day for the guy who uh, said he had a master's degree when he had a bachelor's degree and the job didn't require a master's degree? Yeah. Is there some other method um, to hold a person accountable? One of the things that, despite me having had been an attorney for 25 years, you know, when you're out, rules are I'm mandated to have a job. I'm mandated to have a place to live. Yep. Very difficult to get a job when you have a felony conviction. Yep. It's very difficult. It, without the largesse, the generosity, the kindness of my ex-wife, um, uh, relatives, friends, um, wouldn't have anywhere to live. Yep. I'm still homeless, basically. Couch surfing. Yep. Nice places. Right. But I applied for an apartment. A friend was going to co-sign. Um, Help me with the security deposit. Yeah. The apartment, once they found out that I had a record, the guy knew who I was. But they said, oh, wait a minute. You can't put down you got a record because then you'll get denied. Um, but you can't lie. Can't lie. You're on, you're on probation. You're not lying. Correct. So there are a lot of challenges that people face. And again, one of the greatest lessons that I learned while I was away, and I used to talk about this when I would quote Smart on Crime and us addressing the root causes of crime. Mm. We can't incarcerate our way out of crime, but I would talk about um, the best way to reduce recidivism, prevent crime was jobs, 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 and jobs. Well, what I learned teaching GED and teaching a work readiness program of interview preparation and, you know, resume uh, skills. 
the majority of the men that I lived with in Morgantown, the majority of the men that I taught GED were very intelligent. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of them always had jobs. They maintained jobs. Mm -hmm. They supplemented and augmented their income with uh, shady means sometimes. Um, But what they lacked, Jeff, they lacked the ability to keep a job. Yeah. They didn't know who to show up on time. They lacked conflict resolution skills. They didn't have financial literacy. They had addictions that prevented them from full retention in the workforce. Um, And so I really wanted to come home um, and use the combination of my professional experiences and my personal life journey now, right, to help prevent crime um, by the training, vocational training, and the wraparound skills that people need to remain and thrive in the workforce. Because the majority of the men that I met that talked about it, Mm -hmm. a lot of folks don't want to talk about criminal stuff. Some brag about stuff, but you know they're just BS. Um, But a lot of them would say, look, the average kid out there selling crack on the corner is making about $8 an hour. Would make much more money if you went and bought a case of water and sold each bottle for a dollar. Because most of these folks are great entrepreneurs and have great business acumen mm-hmm. and mathematical skills that clearly I did not. Um, and so what I thought and what I would hope to do at this point and trying to figure out what to do, but listening to you and bouncing ideas off of you and folks like you, is maybe to help um, a company or to be a consultant or to work at the individual vocational training facility to really help folks learn the skills to get a job, to keep a job, to stay out of trouble. So... This is really a story about you finding your own authenticity and and making your way back to yourself. And the humility that you're displaying right now is so much of what you talked about at the very, very beginning of this when you were a child. And there you are. So what a, an amazing path you had to go through to get back to that, the purity of, of who you were raised to be by, your, by Rufus Williams. Yeah. And, you know, it's just liberating in some ways, in many ways, not to have to worry about the black tie events and this mm-hmm. and that. Sure having to call people and having to raise money and what people think. Now, don't get me wrong. I was angry for a while. I was angry at why people who I had gotten jobs for them or I had gotten jobs for their spouses, yeah, yeah. giving them raises, look, wrote letters for them to get their kids into colleges or high mm-hmm. schools, right? Why aren't they writing me letters? Why aren't they looking out for my children? While I'm gone, why? So I had to get through all of that. Um, And I'm still working through some of that, of course. But to get to a point where um, if someone slams me on Twitter for having been the disgraced DA, I don't need to get into an argument with that person. Right? My grandfather used to say to never argue with a fool because a bystander won't know who's who. Exactly. That's part of it. But also I'm just at peace with, okay, now I can tell folks that for all the folks that I I had a wonderful job, that they didn't trust me as the DA, um, to everyone that I let down, I'm sorry. Mm. And I regret having let them down. To the people that uh, I didn't help enough, I wish I could have done more. For the people that I couldn't help, I wish I could have, and I'm sorry that I didn't. 
But for the people that supported me and were there for me and my daughters, I can never thank them enough. Right. But I'm no longer getting into chasing everybody to like me and that I need 12,000 followers or this, that, or the other, or the world's going to be on fire or Chicken Little's going to tell me the sky's falling because, you know, state senator or whatever isn't trying to help me. Wow. Just let it go. It's not. I used to think I needed, you know, the 10,000 friends. Now I just need five good friends. That's it. Well, I'm, I'm proud to be one of those friends. And uh, um, there's a lot of love between us and uh, uh, obviously a lot of uh, common experience. And um, I look forward to being on this journey with you, man, because, you know, not only are you a powerful example of how you can, uh, well, I don't want to sound too trite about lemonades and lemons, but I think that, that you, you're keeping it real. And, and that's what people need to hear. Right. They, you know, they need to, the, all this garbage needs to just be pushed aside because ultimately, you know, we're going to stand before our maker. Right. And, um, and it's nice to have your life sorted out before that happens. Right. Yeah. And Jeff, you know, I don't want to sound too preachy because I never want to be a guy that just quotes yeah. scripture for, and that kind of freaks some people out. Yeah. What I had to learn, I always wanted God to talk to me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, being raised a young Catholic boy, that that would mean that one day a cloud would come in the window and an angel would talk to me. Yeah. What I had to learn was, through so many situations while I was in prison, Mm -hmm. God talks to us daily. Yeah. Through other people, through situations, Mm -hmm. through the beauty of a rainbow. Mm -hmm. God's talking to us. Are we listening? And I had a, an experience while I was in solitary where I'll give you the, the Reader's Digest version, but a, an inmate whose name was Bright Ogado mm-hmm. told me that he was considering killing himself yeah. because he had totally embarrassed, as he saw his family, he let them down. Mm-hmm. He was the son of a Nigerian diplomat, he had five children, he had a, a wife, he felt as though he let them all down. He had a master's in finance. Mm-hmm. He said that he had written his suicide note. And then he looked that day in the hall and he saw the guards walking me through the hall handcuffed. Yeah. And he said to himself in a very thick Nigerian accent, he said, that is Mr. Williams. He was in the A. He's lost much more than I'll ever lose. Yet he is still standing. If he can survive, so shall I. And I was blown away by what he was saying. I said, well, wait a minute. Are you telling me? He said, yes. If it wasn't for you and me seeing you and you surviving, if you can do it, I can do it. And because of you, my five children still have a father. My wife still has a husband. So that really blew my mind, Jeff. Make me begin looking at it like, yeah, I've been looking at all of this through the perspective of, oh, woe is me. I've lost everything. Yeah. But the reality is a, a you know, famous verse in the Bible that says the battle's not mine, it's his. I used to always think that that meant when I'm in a bad spot, I can pray to God and he's going to fight for me. Yeah. I, I kind of look at it in a different perspective that I used to tweet everything about how great I was. Look, you know, I did this thing to help reduce gun violence. I did this thing. But really, I was put in situations to help God. Yeah, to do God's work. Do God's work. Right, and what might have seemed like a terrible thing, me being in prison, well, I was helping SK write letters to his family. I was helping um, people learn to do their GEDs. Mm -hmm. And Bright Agato lived. Yeah. So I was where I needed to be at that time as upsetting as it might have been to me, I was there for a reason. 
that is bigger than me. And all of this is much bigger than me. And so hopefully um, other folks hearing my, my dog, Charlie has just shown up. Other people will hopefully hear some of these things and maybe uh, learn lessons that I didn't learn before. Um, that's beautiful, Seth. All right, we, uh, we're, we're, we're closing out. Uh, um, I know you want to be of service to other people. So how, how do people get in touch with you? Well, thanks, Jeff. And if anybody wants to email me, they can email me at rsethwilliams2.0 at gmail.com. I love that. This is the reboot. I love that. Seth, uh, thank you for being uh, my guest. And uh, you know, I love you, brother. I'm so happy, so, so happy to, to talk to you and uh, heard your story in full. Thank you very much, Jeff. Okay. God bless you, my friend. Take care. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.